Amen. Kids can meet at the back for the children's sermon. John, before you get too far, I told you to stop saying I'm sorry. All right? The Lord called you to serve this church. You're serving us well. Thank you, brother. Um, John mentioned the, uh, the deacon's fund. You might have noticed a red toolbox out on the welcome table. That is there uh, for you if you have the opportunity to, um, to add to that as an offering. That is one of the ways in which the deacons seek to serve our own. Um, and so I just point that out to you. I'll invite you to join me in 1 Kings chapter 16. We are uh, jumping ahead from where we finished off last week with 1 Kings 15, um, along about verse 25. But let me tell you about what we are, um, or, or what has happened in between. Uh, the, the verses in between where we left off last week and where we pick up this week recounted the story of five kings in Israel, the northern kingdom. Those five kings were bad kings. Uh, more specifically, they were evil kings. And the, the stories of their reign that is included in those verses are, are brief, they're dark. There's a downward spiral taking place among these kings until we get to King Ahab in, in uh, 1 Kings 16, 29, and there everything just falls off a cliff. The description of Ahab's reign will extend over six chapters. It's a longer description of the reign, but it's not longer because the trend reverses. It's longer because it gets worse. It intensifies. Now, as bleak as all of that sounds, in this passage we also come to the blessing of the breaking in of God's Word. Now, kids, as you're listening to this story, and as you hear about this breaking in of, of God's Word, this is what I want you to listen for and what I want you to talk to your parents about over lunch. How does God discipline with His Word? And also, how does He bless with His Word? You listen for that as we look to God's Word. Okay, as we prepare to turn there, would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we come to this passage and, and we come as needy children. We we don't understand the words that we read apart from the enlightening power of your Spirit. And so would you be with us this day and through your word expose our need and point us to Jesus, our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. This is the inerrant and infallible word of God. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who took for his wife Jezebel, 
the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In the days of Hiel of Bethel, in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the book by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. This is the word of the Lord. Most of us, at least I, (laughs) I love a good meme. (laughs) We love those memes probably because we like to laugh at the foolish things that other people do or maybe we can see that they are about to do. Oftentimes those those mishaps that are captured in those memes uh, come about when people ignore the warning signs that are there for them. Oftentimes, if we're honest, as people step one rung too far on the ladder. (laughs) But it's one thing to laugh at the funny picture that we see. It's another thing for us to live it out. Why is it that so often we reject the, the care and even the warnings that are given to us by those who love us? It's been happening ever since the beginning of time, ever since Adam and Eve, and the sin of Eve is alive and well. What was that sin? Well, we look at Scripture and see that that she ate of the forbidden fruit, but what was true of Eve is also true of us. There is always a sin beneath the sin. The sin beneath the sin for Eve is also the sin beneath the sin For us, it was a rejection of the Word of God because she and we want to be like God. Maybe we fear that He's holding out on us, and so we've got to take matters into our own hands. It shows up when we distrust and reject the Word of God and the provision of God. It shows up in the rejection of authority Broadly, it shows up for us in the many forms in which we seek about building our own personal kingdoms. You know, we laugh at the, at the silliness of memes, but there's a fine line between the silliness of ignoring 
warning signs in the evil of chasing after false gods. King Ahab, in this passage, takes that to a new level. The text tells us that he is the worst of all of the kings. He did more evil than his fathers before him. He lightly and casually walked in the sin of idolatry as his father Jeroboam had walked, but then took it up a notch in the form of his marriage. He married Jezebel, who turned out to be a gateway to full-blown Baal worship. The signs were there, the warning signs flashing for Ahab. God's word had been very clear. You are not to take a wife from among the nations around you. But what did Ahab do? He, he took the daughter of the king of Sidon. That was a warning sign that he ran right past. But there was another flashing in bright red lights. All you had to do was look at his name. Eth Baal. Which means literally with Baal. He's named after a pagan god. Baal was the Canaanite storm god of fertility and rain. And in an arid region that was dependent upon agriculture, rain was the source of life. And for those pagan people, Baal was the answer. Turns out, Ethbaal's daughter Jezebel was the evangelist. God's word had warned over and over and over again against those lesser gods, those, those no gods. And, and Jezebel, as we will see over the coming chapters, turned out to be the one who wore the pants in the family. We see it in her religious influence on Ahab, and thus through him, her religious influence on the kingdom around them. The scripture is clear. It, it actually drives home the point. It says that Ahab served Baal. Ahab worshipped Baal. Ahab built temples to Baal. Ahab built altars to Baal. There's this repeat that drives home the point, and then there's the little cherry on top of the Sunday. He built an Asherah pole to the pagan goddess Asherah. Jeroboam's defining sin, the, the sin that we keep hearing about in 1 Kings, was the sin of idolatry, but for Ahab it was worse. You see, for Jeroboam it was a, it was a syncretistic worship where he, he blended a form, of, a form of Yahweh along with the the idols of the pagan nations. Now make no mistake, the blended worship is still a false worship. We said last week, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Ahab, he lets go of the blend altogether. Ahab is all in, full on Baal worship. It is the defining character of his reign and of his evil. What a sad irony. Evil irony is that in chasing after false gods, Ahab created a godless culture, the culture that depended upon images to provide the sustenance that only comes 
from the Lord. That was the, that was the culture that Ahab created as he chased after Baal. But we've been hearing and seeing in 1 Kings that as go the leaders, so go the people. And we see that here as well in this passage. We see it in verse 34. Hael was one of the subjects of the kingdom. But the evil in the king begat evil in the kingdom. In what we're about to see in Hael, there's, a, there's an, alert, an alert, a warning for us. You see, it can be awfully tempting to read this passage and hear me railing about Ahab. And we begin to think in our mind, we fill in the blank. What is the evil leader that we want to be careful of? While that's true, be careful of evil leaders. This is a message for us. This is a message of warning for us to look deep inside our own heart and see how we're tempted to follow after our leaders. That's what Hael did as he ignored the warnings that came from the Word of God and he went about rebuilding Jericho in a blatant contradiction to the Word of God. What's going on in this rebuilding of Jericho? Well, as Joshua led the people of God into the promised land, the first pagan city they came to, the first Canaanite city they came to was Jericho. By the power of the Lord, they destroyed the city of Jericho. They inhabited the promised land, but in Joshua chapter 6, verse 26, we hear, a haunting word. Hear this and connect it to what you just heard in 1 Kings. Joshua 6, 26. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. We don't know in 1 Kings if this passages saying that Hael sacrificed his children, and that's, make no mistake about it, what those false gods, that was what the worship looked like. Or if he did so and was punished according to the word of God. But regardless, 1 Kings told us what happened. Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. And set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. He recklessly put his own ambition ahead of his family. What deadly consequence. Since that's the state of Israel here in this passage. It's seen in the foolishness and the idolatry of both king and subject. But into that setting. We see a ray of light. Into that setting, we, we are introduced to the prophet Elijah who brings with him the word of God. But he speaks that word first and foremost as a word of judgment. I told you about the extended passage beginning midway through chapter 15. As I have been saying over and over again in our time in 1 Kings, go home this afternoon and read the passage. But let me warn you as you read this extended passage, it's, it's dark, it's, it's bleak, it's depressing. We find ourselves wondering, as, has all hope 
gone? Is there no more light? Imagine there was still a remnant in Israel. We'll hear about that remnant later. Imagine what that remnant must have been thinking. They too must have seen the idolatry of the kings around them. And they must have been wondering, where is the hope? It seems to have all gone away. Did you ever feel yourself wondering that? Did you ever feel yourself looking around? Look at the culture around us. Maybe more appropriately, the depths of your own hearts. And wondering... Where is my hope? Our meditation for worship this morning was Psalm 121. In Psalm 121, the psalmist cries out, I look to the hills from where does my help come? The help for the psalmist and the help from Israel and the help from us is always in the Lord. The psalmist answered his own cry, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We see the help here. In 1 Kings 17, as the Lord breaks into the darkness, breaks into the wilderness with the voice of one crying out, with his messenger and his powerful word. Now, first of all, though, I want you to see, though there was a warning sign in the form of Ethbaal and his name with Baal, there is There's a ray of hope, even in Elijah and in the meaning of his name. While while Jezebel's father's name represented his idol worship, Elijah's name, my God is the Lord, or my God is Yahweh. It wasn't just the meaning of his name, it was also the word that he proclaimed There at the beginning in verse 1 of 17, Elijah opens his mouth as the Lord, the God of Israel lives. He's proclaiming God, Yahweh, to be the God of Israel, not some cheap dime store imitation like a false rain god named Baal. No, Elijah is declaring that Yahweh reigns in Israel And regardless of what Ahab would declare by his actions, stating by his actions that Yahweh is dead, Elijah makes it clear. The Lord is the God of Israel, and He lives. And then he proclaims the word of judgment. There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah is proclaiming a drought. But you got to see what it is that he's doing in proclaiming this drought. This is a polemical word. This is a declaration of war against a rain god. Remember, Baal was there pagan God of rain, and yet Yahweh himself is the one who controls the rains of heaven. And in response to the pandemic of idol worship that was existing in Israel, Yahweh himself shut off the spigot. It's an abrupt word of judgment over this idol worship, but it was not a new word. 
way back in, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, as, as Moses is, is preparing the people of God to go into the promised land and to take this land, he, he warns them of this very thing. Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 through 17, this is God's word through Moses Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit. And you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. It's a warning. And it's a warning given in love. Something we need to hear in that warning. Our God, He is a relational God. And He is the giver of good gifts. But those gifts are meant to be enjoyed in relationship with Him. That relationship itself is our highest and best good. And so our God will not let us separate the gift from the gift giver. And He will, when necessary, remove the gift in order to draw us back. That's the word of judgment that we have here. He's removing the gift of rain to draw us back back but the judgment wasn't done it's not only that the lord was removing rain he is also removing the word it's tempting to read verse 3 as if the lord is hiding elijah to protect him he says there to elijah depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook cherith which is east of the jordan Tempting to think that the Lord feels this desperate need to protect Elijah from Jezebel and Ahab, so he sends him away. But don't miss this. The God who stops the rain does not need to hide in order to protect. There's more going on here. Not only is there a drought in the land, the Lord is declaring a drought of the word as an additional form of judgment. Let me ask you a question. How long can you hold your breath? My brother was giving me some swimming lessons, working on my stroke recently, and so he gave me an exercise teaching me how to, how to actually... Uh, exercise my lungs so I could hold my breath longer. I did it, and he timed me. It's actually a scary thought. Have you ever timed yourself to see how long you can go without breathing? In the first few seconds, it's no problem. Piece of cake. As time goes on, there's this growing sense of anxiety that builds. Pretty soon, you know you've got to take a big breath. And we know this. We don't consciously think about it. We just breathe in and out, in and out until we can't. At the point at which we can't, we realize just how precious that gift of oxygen is. It's the same with food. 
Well, yeah, we could go longer without food that we can with oxygen, but we still don't like it. At some point, we come to this increasing desperation to eat. Jesus points us to something that is more precious than oxygen and food. As Jesus began his, his earthly ministry, he began it with a 40-day fast. At the end of that 40-day fast, there was a period of, of temptation. Now, Jesus was God, the Son, but Jesus was also fully man. You and I have a hard time going 40 minutes without food, no less 40 days. At the end of those 40 days, Jesus in all his humanity was hungry. And that's when the devil entered in. And he offered to fulfill that need. He offered to fulfill that hunger. The devil provided an alternative to the provision of God. And the difference between the devil and Baal is the devil actually could have given food. He actually could have provided what he promised. But Jesus didn't fall for it. And he responded to the devil, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus responded to the temptation in this way. He was actually citing Scripture. You see, the Word of God is a warning to God's people, and it actually works well when we use it as such. Jesus responded to the devil with Scripture, and he was citing Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. There in Deuteronomy 8, chapter... By the way, have you noticed how much we've gone back to Deuteronomy? Because there in Deuteronomy... Moses was preparing the people to enter into the promised land for all that we see here in Kings. And there in Deuteronomy 8, Moses is speaking to the people of God. And he's recounting their time of wandering around in the wilderness. And he tells them that the Lord let them go hungry. The Lord let them go hungry so that he might fulfill that need with the manna. So they then would experience the blessing of dependence on the Lord their God. And yet as Moses is telling them all about this in Deuteronomy 8, he goes on to connect the dots because he tells them that that provision of manna and their dependence upon the manna pointing them to a deeper provision and a deeper dependence upon the Word of God. Do you feel that dependence? I asked how long you can go without breathing or eating. How long can you go without the Word of God? actually not an invitation to fast. It's an invitation to feast. We get the blessing of feasting on the Word of God week in and week out as we open this Word from this pulpit. But it's not just a weekly feast we get to enjoy. You get to enjoy a daily feast of the Word of God because the Lord our God delights to feed His children with His Word. 
Lord is also showing us that He will remove the Word and He will remove the rain if we take it for granted. Instead of chasing after the false gods, our God is calling us to cling to the true Word. There's a call to Ahab. There's a call to Hael, but it's also a very personal call to us. Ahab had abandoned the word and built temples to Baal. Hael had abandoned the word and he built a city. It's two versions of the same sin. The sin of personal kingdom building. begs the question for us here today, what are the temples to Baal that we are building? What are the cities of Jericho that we are seeking to rebuild? Again, this word is not meant to merely point at those bad people. It's calling us to look inward and do some self-reflection What personal kingdoms are we trying to establish? Could it be the self-focused way we arrange our time? Declaring it to be all ours? Could it be the career that we're trying to build? At the cost of our family? At the cost of our children? Could it be the well-crafted image that we're trying to portray? Believing in the lie that with that image we might find affirmation and and life. Oh, we're much more given over to personal kingdom building than we care to admit. But the Word of God points us all to a better kingdom and to a God who sometimes in disruptive ways will expose the lesser kingdoms that we've chased after. There's an underlying truth in this passage, there is also an underlying truth in the entire Word of God. Our God, He is a good Father. And He loves with a fierce love. At times, we earthly parents can be fairly weak and needy. When we're not ignoring our children, we're trying to buy their affection. Giving them whatever they want with the hopes that they might just love us a little bit more. But our God and Father, He is neither weak nor needy. He is loving and His love is perfect and powerful. And at times, our good and loving Father will wreck our personal kingdoms in order to secure our hearts. We've been saying over and over again in 1 Kings that the word of judgment is a two-sided coin. On the other side of it, it is a word of mercy that the Lord our God gives us to draw us back into the blessing of dependence upon Him. So I ask you, do you have a place in your theology for a God this strong? Do you have a place in your theology for a God this fierce, so strong and fierce that He will remove in order to draw 
that we might cling. It's a passage in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that I can't tell if it's near and dear to my heart or just or what. Part of what the Lord used, it was part of the straw that broke the camel's back in my initial call to ministry as I had been wrestling with that call for some time. But in Second Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul recounted a time such as this that he and, and Timothy had experienced. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, this is, this is Paul's words, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You see... Paul is is drawing out for us a truth that we see in 1 Kings. That there is a greater blessing of intimacy and dependence that that is offered to the children of God. It is a blessing that is greater than the personal kingdoms that we are seeking to build. But sometimes this God who is fierce in His love will bring us through a season of suffering to draw us more closely to Himself. It is a dependence that that is experienced through our clinging to the Word. And in clinging, the God of daily bread will provide. You see, this dailiness here in this passage, he is a God who is fierce and he is a God who is tender. And he cared for Elijah supernaturally by sending the ravens with food to care for him. And he did it daily. And in the dailiness, he drew him into the blessing of intimate dependence. We see God's love in His care for Elijah, but we also experience it for us through Elijah. You see, Elijah was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. He cried out a word of warning and a word of invitation to trust in the living God. But there is one who came after Elijah, another voice crying out in the wilderness. John the Baptist. He proclaimed a message of warning and a message of invitation. His warning was a warning for us to repent of our personal kingdom building, but it was an invitation, a beautiful invitation to trust in Jesus Christ, the Savior who came to take the punishment that was due to us. He died in our stead that we might have life. John came after Elijah, but Jesus would come after John. In a few weeks, I'm, I'm going back to India. I'm going back to minister to the pastors whom you have supported for, for years now. 
pastors who are proclaiming the word in a dark and bleak land. I love to go and be with them, to teach them, to care for them, but I have found India to be an oppressive place. It is a place of great darkness. It is a place of great idolatry. The images, the idols abound. There is a tangibleness to them so that their, their images hang from every shopkeeper windows and the and the temples are actually just built in the middle of a busy city street. It's a picture of the foolishness of idolatry and it's oppressive. There is no lack of gods or goddesses in India, but none can nor will suffice. But praise be to God, with all of those images that are abounding, there are two images that stick out in my mind from the years that I have been going to that country. One is of an elderly man and one is of a young woman. And both of those images etched in my mind are of this man and this woman coming up out of the waters of baptism. Oh, they're still stuck in poverty. They're still stuck in disease. But the images in my mind of this man and this woman are images of captured in a smile and a clenched fist because though the idols abound around them, they have come to know the hope of a Savior who died in their place and they know that hope because the Word of God has been proclaimed in that wilderness. Brothers and sisters, that is the Word that proclaims a better hope of a better more lasting kingdom. And that word is true in impoverished India and in affluent America. We have our own idols. We have our own kingdoms, but none of them will save. But the living God has spoken a word of judgment and offered a word of mercy wrecking those personal kingdoms that abound in our culture and in our own hearts. So let us be a people who cling to the Word of God and to the Word incarnate. Father, we praise You that You are not a weak God, that You are indeed fierce in Your love for Your children and you have spoken your word over us. Would you use it by the power of your spirit to draw us into ever deeper, ever richer dependence upon you? Do this, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ.